So this evening I'd like to um, to speak, to share some uh, reflections about practicing Dharma in, in challenging times. And clearly, when we look at our lives, it's quite clear that challenging times happen. It can be internal challenges, like times of um, confusion, times of feeling stuck, times of feeling uh, deep unhappiness for whatever reason. And it can be external difficulties and challenges, like illness, loss, of different types. And, you know, could go on and on describing or mentioning. But I think we all know part of the human condition, as, as we've been speaking of over the days here. And so this is true in our personal lives, and it's also very true in um, our global shared lives of all of us together. You know, we look at our societies, our world, the environment. There's plenty of difficulties, challenges, injustice, inequality, oppression, violence, hatred, list can go on. And for me, the question of how to practice, how to live Dharma in the face of these challenges, engaged with these challenges, it's a really um, very urgent question for me and has been for a couple of decades at least. What are the ways to access the wisdom of Dharma teachings, to access the resources that we have, that we access through the Dharma, and to bring them into, these, into the midst of our difficulties, into the midst of the challenges that we face, and to address suffering and its causes, and personal and global And reflecting on this, I've been, I've been playing with this since the beginning of this year, um, really, really reflecting, really questioning, and I kind of came up with this um, model or three areas or fields where I feel like this really can be applied, where Dharma can really, ways that the Dharma can really support us, when it can, when, where, ways that it can really nourish us and be applied. And, you know, unsurprisingly, you know, I came up with three things, you know, I wonder why, sitting behind me, the master of the lists. Um, <laughs> And just to say that the fact that, you know, it's three things, it'd be quite clear when I speak about them, three areas, um, they're very much interconnected and in interplay. So it's not, you know, one, two, three, three separate things. They're constantly in play with each other. But I find this way of looking at things very useful. Um, happen to like lists. So... Um, it felt quite natural to come up with one. So the first way, the first area, the first field of how, um, how Dharma can support us, nourish us, be applied in, in the face of challenging times is what I'm calling the Dharma of taking refuge. The Dharma of taking refuge. <coughs> 
In the tradition, this is a very common practice, you know, taking refuge. If this was um, a more religious Buddhist environment, then we would begin the teachings probably with taking refuge. That's very common. And it's important to reflect on what is the refuge that's available to us through, through Dharma teachings. And so, just before I, I go into more detail, I'd say that for me, uh, a really strong word that comes up in relation to this feeling or this sense of refuge is sanity. So, the refuge being a place of sanity when either there's a lot of inner turmoil or we're facing the, what feels sometimes like the complete insanity of, of the world around us. And so in the tradition, we take refuge, or the refuge that is available to us is refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And I'll say a little bit about what each of these symbolizes. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, it's about connecting to our own potential, the potential to... Um, awake to find freedom from suffering and its causes the potential to be of benefit and of welfare to other beings you know so that is kind of taking refuge taking refuge in the Buddha is taking refuge in our own potential for that Taking refuge in Dharma is connecting to the wisdom and compassion of the teachings. Connecting to the wisdom and compassion of the teachings. It's also taking refuge in the fact that there is a path to to transformation. There is a path to awakening. That's that's really good news. It's also taking refuge in Dharma, is also taking refuge in the truth of the way things are, which is one of the meanings of Dharma. And the fact that, yes, things are uncertain and impermanent, that discomfort is an aspect of the human condition, and that everything and everyone is codependent, that none of us and not, no thing exists separately with a separate, inherent, solid identity. Taking refuge in the Sangha is taking refuge in the community of like-minded people and beings, in the fact that there's others who share what is important to me, others that share my values, my aspirations. Many times, at times of challenge, we feel very much alone. And so taking refuge in the knowledge that actually we are not alone. And so just to reiterate this, these flavors that, that this act of taking refuge can have, um, that sense of shelter and of nourishment, you know, going for refuge, going to a place of shelter, a place of sanity and care and nourishment, um, which is very much what we do when we go on retreat. You know, it's very much what we do when we have a daily practice. You know, we, we take time to, to sit down and reconnect to that place of, of sanity, that place of care, that place of shelter for us, our own deep nature. There's also 
an aspect of this taking refuge which is really about um, faith and a renewal of commitment to what matters to us. You know, there's a real thing of yes, you know. There is something I have faith in. And I have commitment to, you know, whatever that is. And I think um, some of the of the things that came up in the exercise this afternoon may be those for us. You know, renewed commitment and faith. And so this element of taking refuge can have a feeling of a, you know, of a retreat because we often associate it with a stepping away from the busyness of life or the engagement with life as we're we're doing here, which, you know, again, can be also questioned. You know, so stepping away from some aspects of life in order to become more intimate and closer to others. But it's also available to us in the moment. It's also available to us sometimes within very um, extreme situations. So I'd like to give an example of this from my own experience. And um, as you may have already noticed, I like, I like sharing stories. This specific one is always challenging because it's long. And for this, um, what I want to share now, I need to just stick to a snippet of it, so I'll do my best to just tell the relevant part. This, um, this happened a few years ago um, when I was at a, at, at a checkpoint uh, between um, Palestine and Israel. And I was there to pick up um, two of my friends with their nine-year-old daughter who... Um, was going into Israel to um, receive chem- chemotherapy for, for bone cancer. And it had been arranged uh, by a group of us, of Israeli friends, that um, they would be able to come in from this checkpoint, which was a checkpoint for um, Israelis, because she, could know she couldn't walk at that point. Um, and so the parents had to carry her, and it was really distressing and difficult. To, to carry her physically through the, the other checkpoints where there was a long queue, sometimes take two hours. And so it had been arranged, there was special permission given that they could um, go to this checkpoint where their family could drop them off right at a gate and Israeli friends could wait just on the other side and they just have to walk a few metres from one car to the other. But as it was a special arrangement... Um, we arrived early to uh, make sure that when, when Maruf and Kassar arrived with their daughter, they would be able to immediately pass through. And so um, we arrived and, and parked the car, and my partner stayed in the car, and I went to speak to, to the soldiers. And um, I walked up, it was a Sunday morning, which is the first day of the week in Israel, of the work week. And um, there were a couple of, of young uh, women soldiers, probably 18, 19 years old. And I, I just walked up and said, you know, um, hi, I'm here to, to do this, and explained very briefly. Um, I just want to make sure that you know it's happening and um, that, you know, you'll, you'll open the gate when they arrive. And they looked at me... Um, and they said, no, we, we don't know anything about it. I no, haven't heard anything about it. And there was a quality of disinterest in the voice, you know, and in the, in the mannerism. And I said, well, you know, I know, you know, we spoke to someone in your, um, I don't know, the terminology, kind of the, your commander this morning. Um, could you please phone, you know, contact them to check. 
And there was still this sense of disinterest coming back at me. And so at that moment, you know, obviously a lot of reactivity coming up. But in that moment, the Dharma was a refuge. Staying in the body, holding, containing my own reactivity, not acting on it. Taking in the bigger picture. You know, I've been a soldier in the Israeli military myself, and I know what it is to be 18 or 19 years old and not have been at home for the weekend. And I know what it is to be disinterested in something that matters to somebody else. You know, I know that experience. So Dharma is a refuge. I also took in my surroundings, a place full of fences and walls and separation, a place that the message sends a message so strongly, a message of enmity, a message of difference. And the voice that came up from this place of, ref- of refuge within me, of Dharma, was very strong, and it said... Inside of me, I looked at this young woman and my whole being said, I will not be your enemy. I will not be your enemy. There's too much of that already. I won't add anything to it. So instead, I chose to explain again. A lot of other things happened after that. This is why this is a long story. But I'll only say at this point that half an hour later, when my friends arrived at the gate, the soldiers ran to open the gate for them. And when they watched the father carry his daughter from one car to the other, settle her in, and then reach into his pocket to show his permit... They said, no, no, no. Just go. So that refuge in the Dharma can be so powerful for us, a real place to to rest and to fulfill our deep wish, our deep aspiration. So we've been speaking about bodhisattva practice here a little bit, bodhicitta, and and this is what it is. It's about really using our challenging times as places of practice, as places of growth. Everything can be included in that. And I think I've said this before, that no one... And nothing has to stay outside of of our heart. So taking refuge, that's the first area that we can bring Dharma in and we can rest into Dharma. The second is what I, um, I call integrity and cultivation, integrity and cultivation. And this um, this was very much inspired, again, at the beginning of this year, um, I, was, I was having a, a phone conversation with my brother who lives in Jerusalem. And I was in India at the time. And he was sharing with me what a difficult time it was for him. Um, living in an atmosphere of fear and with a a lot of build-up of of violence and of hatred around him. And feeling very helpless, he was feeling very helpless in the face of it. He was saying, what can I do? I feel like there's nothing I can do. Um, There's, you know, anyone all around me, people's views are shifting uh, to be more extreme and... I feel so helpless facing this situation around me. And we were asking each other, what can be done? You know, what can be done? 
And as we were speaking, what was unfolding was this important in the, the resting in and prioritizing integrity and what we call in the tradition sila or ethical conduct. We've spoken about that. And the phrase that was coming up for me was, you know, having a moral backbone as something that really supports us, you know, actually ethics, morality, integrity, something that deeply supports us when it feels like internally or externally things are falling apart. And it reminded me of this um, beautiful story about someone called A.J. Must. Just curious, has anyone ever heard of him? No. He coined a very famous phrase, uh, which is attributed to Gandhi or Thich Nhat Hanh often. Um, he coined a phrase saying, there's no way to peace, peace is the way. And possibly more people have heard that. And he was very active um, in the civil rights movement in the US and um, even more prominently in, in the struggle um, to stop the Vietnam War. So there's an incredible um, story about him. Um, during the Vietnam War, he, every night, he would stand outside the White House with a candle. Every night. And some nights there'd be other people there. Usually he was alone. And he, he was fairly well known, so um, a journalist came to interview him. And the journalist asked him, you know, do you really think that, you know, by standing here alone with a candle, you're going to change the, the policy of your government and um, the general atmosphere in your country? And AJ Musk replied, he said, oh no, oh no, <laughs> no, no, that's not what I, why, why I'm doing this. I'm not doing this in order to change the government or the country. I'm doing this so that the government and the country doesn't change me. So that sense of our inner integrity, of following through on what we know matters and staying true to that, this moral backbone. In this conversation with my brother, we were speaking about how important it was. He has three children. You know, just if all you can do is you can be this presence of sanity, of integrity, of kindness, of wholesomeness for your children. Isn't that an incredibly important thing? To have that message there so clear for you. So being like a light, you know, if we use the symbol of that candle from A.J. Musk, being a light, that integrity, that moral backbone is a light that both shines within. It's a resource. It supports our own well-being, and it also shines out. And it keeps that light burning, not just for us. Yeah, It keeps that light burning for others. You know, including the next generations, which is, yeah, really, really important. So even if we can't immediately and directly affect the circumstances, keeping that flame going, keeping that fire going, keeping that light going, In the Jewish tradition, um, there's a very um, famous saying from the commentaries, which says, which says um, that whoever saves a soul, or whoever saves a life, it's the same word, whoever saves a, a soul or a life, it's considered as if they saved the whole world. And until I was reflecting on this talk a few months ago, I always attributed to it, to the way it's normally attributed, which is, um, you know, to the physical, how important, how precious life is. 
And when I was reflecting on this talk, it came to me with a different meaning. <laughs> it's not a different meaning. Which is when we maintain, when we look after, where we cultivate our own integrity, our moral backbone, ethics. We're saving our own soul. And by doing that, we're saving the whole world. Because if it's within us, then it's in the world. And as we strengthen that, as we cultivate that, as we nourish that, that quality is growing in the world. So even in extreme situations where that's all we can do, what a gift to offer to, to ourselves and all beings. So the qualities that we've been cultivating here, you know, qualities like kindness, generosity, compassion, wisdom, understanding, clear seeing, insight, samadhi, the ability to gather our attention on something specific. All of these nourish this light in us. All of these nourish our moral backbone and our integrity. They all support us in not being overwhelmed by the challenges of our lives. They're all priceless to sustain and cultivate for the world. And they strengthen us from deep within. They really strengthen us from deep within so that we we nourish, we cultivate a kind of power that can move mountains. A power that is so powerful and strong. There's a beautiful um, story that illustrates this from um, actually Ram Das tells it in How Can I Help, which is a book that Jenny mentioned last night and is going to be on the recommended resources list tomorrow. Hmm. And I just like to, um, yeah, I was going to tell it in my own words, but it's so much more beautiful in his that I'm actually going to read it. And if I see that it takes too long, I'll, I'll shorten it a bit. So this is a story told by um, someone, who, um, someone called Terry Dobson, who was studying Aikido in Japan in the 70s, I think. And um, he later on became a, very, um, a master of Aikido. So this is his story. And he, he says... The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a spring afternoon. The car was relatively empty, some housewives, some old folks. I gazed absently at the passing scenery. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing and was big, drunk, and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that the baby was unharmed. Terrified, they all jumped up and scrambled toward the other end of the car. The passengers were all frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, so, yeah, and in pretty good shape. I had been practicing a solid eight hours of Aikido training every day for the past three years. I thought I was tough. The trouble was that my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. I tried hard to follow my teacher's Instructions not to get into fights. My forbearance exalted me. I was both tough and holy. And he laughs at himself there. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolute legitimate opportunity 
whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said to myself as I stood up. People are in danger. If I don't do something fast, somebody will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized the chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the computer strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. All right, he hollered, you're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me, but a fraction, before, a fraction of a second before he could move, someone shouted, Hey! It was ear-splitting. I remember the strangely, strangely joyous lilting quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching for something and he had suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left and the drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his seventies, this tiny gentleman sitting there, immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delightedly at the labourer, as if he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in an easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. The big man turned to him and said, why the hell should I talk to you? The old man continued to beam at him. What, you been, what have you been drinking? His eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and we take it out into the garden and we sit on our old wooden bench and we watch the sun go down and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree, you know, and we worry about it, whether it will recover from those ice storms we had last winter. He looked up at the labourer, his eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften, his fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmons too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer, my wife died. Very gently swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to cry. I don't got no wife, I don't got no home, I don't got no job. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks, a spasm of despair rippled through his body. There I was, standing in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy righteousness. I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. The train arrived at my stop, and as the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said, that is a difficult predicament. Sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. So that inner integrity, the cultivation of kindness, of compassion which builds up a force, a power in us that is unmatchable. And that brings us to the third area of Dharma in challenging times, which is going forth or taking action. Yesterday, Jenny was telling us um, the story of um, 
the Buddha's decision to teach. And over the years in the suttas, when he was asked why, you know, what was his motivation for teaching, he would say, for the welfare of all beings, for the benefits of all beings, for the benefit of all beings, for the welfare and the benefit of all beings. And so going forth, taking action with that same intention. And so just to, to recap, you know, the taking refuge, place of shelter, a place of nourishment, of sanity, of regrouping and recommitment, a place of integrity and cultivation, of strengthening our moral backbone and well-being and aligning more deeply with our aspirations and our potential while reducing the, wholesome and, the unwholesome and harmful ways of being and acting in the world. And so this is the next step, the going forth. And as you can see, it's not separate. Both examples I've given so far have that in them. And so I want to look at this in more detail, how, this, how these three areas, how these three ways of bringing the Dharma into challenging times, how they... Um, how that can be applied in our practice, in our personal lives, and in um, the way we respond to global challenges. So in our practice, um, just taking a very simple example, you know, sitting down to meditation and having a lot of restlessness in the mind and the body, a lot of agitation, so the taking refuge can be the reconnecting to our potential. This is what is happening right now, but this is not the end of the road. You know, right now there is agitation. Right now there's restlessness. Finding some rest, you know, just a few breaths with this agitation or with this restlessness. Maybe using meta practice or walking practice as a way of creating some space, as we've been doing. Talking to a teacher or to a spiritual friend. All of these are ways of finding refuge. Listening or reading teachings, all of these are ways of finding refuge. Integrity or cultivation. Not shooting second, third, fourth... (laughs) Arrows, bringing in meta practice and attitude towards ourselves, or using spaciousness practice, a recommitment to ethics as a support for a clear mind. It's just examples of how we can we can bring that in, and the taking action or the going forth in our practice is to bring in insight or inquiry practices investigating this experience of restlessness. What does it feel like in the body? What does it feel like in the mind? What conditions contribute to it? Remembering it's not me. It's not mine. Not identifying with it. On a personal level, using the example of a, of a loss of relationship or a loss of a job or a loss of an identity that we might have or a role. So the refuge is giving space for grief to arise and pass. You know, that's a place of, of taking refuge. Faith in Dharma, remembering there's still something I value, something that I have that hasn't been taken away with this. Again, support from teachings from teachers, from Sangha. And the question, what else is in my life? So this relationship or this job or this role has ended, but what else is in my life that I value, that gives me a sense of meaning? Cultivation and integrity. It's an opening to impermanence and uncertainty as part of the human condition. Noticing if I can prioritize skillful and non-harming speech and thought and in actual speech. 
really important. Nourishing forgiveness, including for myself. Metta, compassion, equanimity. You know, all these qualities that we've been working with. The going forth or taking action. We usually need some time before we can get to this, but at some point, working directly with whatever residue there is from the experience. What am I still clinging to? You know, looking at that. What can I let go of? What can I learn? You know, how can I deepen my wisdom? And any practical issues that need to still be addressed. Often they're still there. Also practical issues that need to be addressed. In the world, in the world, challenging times in the world, a situation that pains me. It can be, you know, the situation of the refugees, climate change, homelessness, injustice, you know, so many possibilities. So the taking refuge is time to practice, to nourish, to reflect, to deepen in understanding. Integrity and cultivation, living according to my values, to my aspirations, to my passions. How do I embody the change I wish to see in the world? You know, that's a really huge area of cultivation. How do I embody the change I wish to see in the world? Cultivating whatever supports that. Taking action, going forth. Really important to see the spectrum that's available to us, and there's a huge spectrum. You know, from signing online petitions to giving donations to direct action to how we, con- how we consume and what we consume, how we speak and act. Such a huge spectrum. And, and seeing that, opening to that, you know, sometimes we get overwhelmed because we, we start seeing things in black and white, in all or nothing. You know, if I care about that, then I need to do, you know, to give up everything else. But can we see the spectrum? And can we see the value in, in our actions, whatever they are? <coughs> so an infinite scope of what is needed and what is possible and doing what we can and reflecting on the goodness in that. So it's such an important part of the practice reflecting on the good that we're doing. You know, I have it in Gaia House every time I make the effort to go use the compost toilet. It feels so good. (laughs) You know, it's such a small thing to do and sometimes, you know, when I'm teaching, I'm too busy. You know. But just sometimes just these small things and taking the time to to feel how good it feels to do the right thing. Even if it's a bit cold and windy. It feels really good. Try it. So the whole spectrum. And again, this can take us really, really far on the path. But seeing that spectrum, finding what's appropriate and possible for us, and then appreciating, appreciating that. Not as a, as a kind of um, you know, feel-good strategy, but as a real way of supporting that which we value in the world mm. and nourishing that in ourselves. So I'd like to end with one more um, story. This is um, from a friend of mine, dear friend, who um, lives in Jerusalem as well, like my brother, and is one of the co-founders of our Engaged Dharma group in Israel. 
long-term practitioner. And so my friend, whose name is Aviv, this happened a couple of years ago, um, he works for an NGO that um, monitors uh, inequality in, in Jerusalem, particularly between um, Palestinians and, and Jews. And um, this was, you know, in the evening, it wasn't an official job role, but it's also his passion. And so he knew there was going to be a rally of um, extreme uh, anti-Palestinian Jews happening in a, in a place in the city. And uh, he knew where it was going to be, and it was um, on the on the there's a overground railway in in Jerusalem. It was on that overground railway line near there. So he expected that some of the people from the rally would would end up on the overground railway. And that railway goes from East Jerusalem, where from the Palestinian neighborhoods, or through. Um, so it has both Palestinian and Jewish. Uh, people that use it, Palestinian Israelis. And um, so he decided to, to ride the, the overground that evening to, to be present. And um, he was sitting there, and as he had expected, at some point a, a, a group, I don't know how many, maybe 10, 12, uh, young people got on from the rally and they had stickers and um, they started sticking the stickers on the carriages inside the carriages the stickers said um, death to all Arabs and so he was he was ready yeah he was ready he had expected something like that and so, centered in the body, fully aware, fully present, he got up and he took down one of the stickers that they had put up. And so the whole energy was then focused on him. And the shouting um, very quickly became physical. At some point, one of the other passengers must have phoned the police because um, at some point the, the whole um, train was stopped and, and the police got on the um, young, aggressive people, ran away. And um, that was kind of the end of that incident. He filed a, um, a complaint, a report. But speaking about this afterwards, you know, he said that even though it was probably the first time he got beaten up in his life, and yeah, there was physical pain, that sense of integrity, that sense of refuge, that sense of doing the right thing at the right time was so strong. And that there was actually a sense of well-being and joy at being able to do what he knew was right. And so something that happens in situations of challenge, in times of challenge, is that also the full potential of the human heart can come forth and we can witness great acts of courage great acts of compassion great acts of wisdom acts that can inspire us the thing that touches me most deeply about his story and you know other similar stories that i i know is how the practice flows. And like 
the Joanna Macy spiral that we've been working with, it's a spiral. You know, refuge, cultivation, integrity, going forth, it's a spiral, it's not linear. But it's possible to go from moments of taking refuge to moments of being a refuge. You know, being a refuge for those who are weaker or have no voice. for those who are oppressed. And so that's the power of this practice. The spiral that we also have been unraveling here together over the days. From taking refuge to being a refuge for the welfare and benefit of all beings everywhere. So let's have a a quiet moment together to, to end. May all beings find refuge, shelter, nourishment, insanity. May all beings cultivate the wholesome, abandon the unwholesome, and rest into an ever-growing moral backbone. May all beings be free from suffering and its causes. And may our practice together here over the days be for the welfare and the benefit of all beings everywhere including ourselves. So thank you for your listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.